Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Rebecca King Ferraro. And I'm Michael Sean Breeden. And you're listening to Conversations on Dance. Hi, everyone. We are coming at you with another re-release from the early days of Conversations on Dance, this time with author Jennifer Holmans. So many of you tuned into episode 318 with Jennifer, where we explored her latest book, Mr. B, one of the most thorough books on Balanchine's life ever written. And in this episode today first recorded in June 2017, we spoke with Jennifer about the book she wrote prior to Mr. B titled Apollo's Angels. Now that book chronicles Bally's entire history, and we also delve into her own history a little bit as a dancer, as well as her founding of the Center for Ballet and the Arts in New York City. We hope you enjoyed this trip down memory lane with Jennifer, and if you haven't checked out her most recent episode, again, that's episode 318 with Jennifer, we absolutely encourage you to explore that one too. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to join us live today. I'm um, very happy to be here. Thank you for thank having you. me. <laughs> so we figured we'd just start at the beginning. If you could tell us um, about your personal background in ballet. Well, you know, it's funny. My personal background is actually not in ballet. My personal background sort of starts with, I grew up in a family of uh, scholars and academics um, at the University of Chicago. So the the interest in ballet really just started as you know, as a child, when I was sent to the local ballet studio, and when everyone else eventually quit, I just kept going because I really, really liked it. And then somebody asked me to take class with a, a man who had been a professional dancer, and he was now studying at the University of Chicago. And he was doing, I think, business and physics. And he taught this very kind of uh, strangely conceptual class that had to do with the physics of dance and how you, you know, the velocity and spin. And I found it really fascinating. And so in addition to just loving to dance, which is what kept me there in the beginning, then there sort of started to be this sort of intellectual interest in it as well. And at that point, I decided I would um, study seriously. And so I went to the North Carolina School of the Arts. I think... Uh that's so interesting because you you're basically already jumping into our next question, um, which was when did you begin to realize you had a scholarly interest in ballet? So it was really from the very beginning for you. Yeah, it really was, and I think you know, I mean, I I loved it on a physical level because it was a kind of way of, um, it was a way of being quiet 
in a in a, a world that just seemed very busy. And so I loved my dance classes because it was music and quiet. And it also had this wonderful thing, which was if you worked really hard, you got better. And it was kind of reliable in that way. So that I found that very sort of comforting and, and gratifying. Um, and then just the beauty of the music and dancing to it. My mother started to take me to performances this is the, you know, we're talking 1970s. So, you know, it was still the Cold War and there were still, you know, tours of the Bolshoi, tours of the Kirov. Um, we didn't get to New York very much. I grew up in Chicago. So that wasn't really part of my imagination until, until I came to New York to study. Did you always know that you wanted to study in New York? Was that part of the goal? Or no, I really, I really went from the North Carolina School of the Arts, which was kind of my introduction into the the, the really professional world of, of dance. And I had, you know, teachers like Sonia Tyven and Bobby Lindgren and Mimi Paul. Um, and this all led to a scholarship at, at American Ballet Theater and then at, at the School of American Ballet. And so once that happened, I moved to New York when I was, I think, 16, to take up one of those scholarships and um, really to study at the School of American Ballet. Did you have aspirations to become a, a professional dancer? Oh, by then, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> by then I was, you know, then I was going every night mm-hmm. for the next, I was there for four years at the school and I think I was at the theater. You know, every night I was at, at either at the New York City Ballet or at the Philharmonic or somewhere downtown seeing flamenco or it was just a, a great, moment to be in New York. It was a, a wonderful education in dance, but also in, in the other arts. So what was your time like at, at SAB? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah, you know, it was intense, <laughs> fascinating. Uh, it was a Russian world, very much a Russian world. I even remember my audition it was with Danilova and I believe with Madame Dudin and they were certainly speaking Russian most of the time. So I found that all really interesting. Dubrovska was still there. Muriel Stewart was there. It was this sort of emigre world that I didn't know anything about. So I was kind of plunged into something very foreign. And, um, you know, then sort of on the other side of it, just the, the daily routines, the discipline, the incredible performances I was seeing at night it, it was all kind of of a of a piece, and I found it. You know, Stanley Williams was a really important teacher for me. Um, that was sort of on the more intellectual side, in a way. You know, he was much more sort of conceptual about the way he taught. So, you, this whole time, you've obviously already been more attracted to the intellectual side of things. Were there other ways at this point in your? Um student life that you were exercising that part of your brain? Well, you know, I was like most dance students, I think, you know, in the sense that I was taking a lot of classes every day. And there was an afternoon when I was lying on the floor at the school at like, I don't know, 4.30 in the afternoon, getting ready for, you know, my third class of the day. And Danielova walked by and she said, get dressed, go to the Met. (laughs) And she meant it. She was serious. She was sort of too many classes, not enough other stuff get out of here. And so I found that actually, that was kind of a moment for me where I thought, oh, okay, that's, that's interesting. And that's something to pay attention to. 
Um, so uh, what were your professional aspirations? Where, where were you hoping to go and where did you end up dancing professionally? Well, of course, I wanted to get into the New York City Ballet. Um, I did not get into the New York City Ballet. And so I eventually left and um, went to, I, I danced variously, you know, at, at, with the, what was then the Chicago Lyric Opera Ballet with Maria Tolchief. And then in San Francisco, briefly and mainly with Pacific Northwest, when Ken Stoll and Francia Russell were directing it. I think uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about your experiences in Chicago because you know Maria Tallchief is gone, but that's it's fascinating to me to think about there being more of these balancing disciples. It feels feels to me like there were more balancing quote companies back then. Did you feel like um, like when once you left SAB, were you? not worried that you wouldn't get to dance his works? Because I know that's something that a lot of Mm. the students feel now. Am I still going to get to do balancing and use my training? Yeah, you know, that wasn't so much a concern. You're right. That wasn't so much a concern then. I think there were quite a few sort of, you know, satellites, as it were. I mean, there were in Europe and in in the United States. And so that was really possible to imagine. And there was a lot of other interesting work going on, too. And I was very... I always took, you know, when I was at at the school and living in New York, I took regularly Graham classes as well. Um, And so I was really interested also in the contemporary dance world. So that, you know, that doesn't answer your question about Maria Tallchief, but... But but going to a company besides the New York City Ballet was also interesting in that way, Mm -hmm. it turned out, you know, because there were other choreographers to work with that that I didn't know about. I, I'm willing to venture a guess that you were the only girl at SAB taking Graham classes. Cause that seems I pretty, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I mean, it was, you know, it was a continuation of school of the arts because mm-hmm. at, in North Carolina school of the arts, you had to take a full course in, in, uh, in Graham, mm-hmm. especially not so much Cunningham. I don't know why I think it was just who was there teaching. Um, and so, you know, I continued that and I, uh, I took some Cunningham too, but you know, a bit of other uh, other people, Viola Farber. I kind of went around. You know, it, it wasn't looked on very kindly at the school, but we we all, I think we all did it, or a lot of us did it. You know, I studied with Melissa Hayden. She was down the street. You know, it's a little. Yeah. Um, so, what were your professional years like, and and when did you start to feel like you were ready to ease out of? dancing as a career um i i mean i love dancing i really loved it it was just a wonderful thing to do i'm sure you know what i'm saying um, <laughs> and um so i i mean i did a lot of balancing i did some robins you know we had a, a, a variety of things in the rep that was all good um i had some injuries at a certain point and uh at and one of these injuries took me out for several weeks, and I started taking courses at the um, University of Washington and reading books, reading a lot of books. And so I think at that point, I just started to feel, hmm, th- these books are really pulling me. And uh, it wasn't easy to stop at all. I'm not going to pretend it was, but I did make the decision to stop dancing, and then I applied to Columbia and a lot of other schools, but I ended up going to Columbia. So I left Seattle and moved back to New York to go to Columbia. 
Um, I think it's so interesting. The people that we talk to on this podcast so often say that an opportunity arises while they're injured or dealing with an injury that kind of um, steers them in a new direction with something. So I think that's so wonderful to hear. Um, What did you start studying in Washington before you decided to start applying for other schools? You're going to (laughs) laugh. I was taking a course in I was taking courses in the law school. I, I really? Don't know, I don't know how I managed to do that, but I was taking courses in law. And I thought it was really, really, you know, I was just taken with it. I mean, I t- as I said, I came from an academic family, so it was kind of natural for me to be, I was always a big reader, you know. I was the one in the studio with my nose in a book. Um, so it wasn't a surprise, really, to me that I, was, that I ended up doing this. I think what was more surprising was how difficult it was to leave dancing. I mean, it was just, it took me a couple of years to really kind of regain my equilibrium, both uh, physically, just because the physical stopping that kind of level of activity every day, you know, was abrupt and shocking. (laughs) Um, And then just trying to find out who I was when I wasn't a dancer, and also going to college a little bit later in life, too. Yeah, I was in my late 20s, and it was, you know, that was a time when fewer people were doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there, there, there were people there, and that's why I chose Columbia, because Columbia has a program. It was the general studies program where a lot of dancers have actually gone. Right. Um, so during your time there, was there a, a moment that brought you back to ballet and back to dance? You know, I kept dancing for a little while while I was at Columbia. I was doing small performances, things here and there. I went to France. I did some choreography, found out I was lousy at it. You know? <laughs> um, so for then at a certain point, I really left dance, and I studied French literature. And um, although I did, you know, it's true that I, when I got to my senior year at Columbia, I did write a thesis on on American social dance. So I was always sort of still interested in it. Then I worked for Jacques D'Amboise for two years for the National Dance Institute, uh, not teaching, but writing. I was writing curriculum materials, and so I was already moving towards writing and away from the practice of dance. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, I decided to go to graduate school, and I was, was embarked on a PhD in modern European history, at which point I really left dance for several years and thought I would not go back. Um, and then ended up thinking, hmm, maybe I can bring this in. I kept going to performances. I was still interested in it. So um, it's interesting you were studying European history because you would obviously uh, soon after go on to be such uh, an important um, scholar of ballet history, and the two certainly went very nicely. (laughs) Um, So when did you start to do this sort of in-depth research, like, kind of going deeper than maybe anyone in our generation had into um, our history and, and what, what drove you to that? I mean, I think there were a couple of things that drove me to it. One was that when I was dancing myself, I always wanted to read a book about it. And I never, I read a lot of books and there were some good ones, but I never quite found the book that I wanted to read. And then that was kind of in the back of my mind probably for years, right? And then When I was in graduate school, I really studied cultural history. So I was reading cultural histories of music and of art and of theater and um, of literature. And, you know, there just wasn't any good work on dance that I could find, or there wasn't enough good work on dance, is maybe more accurate. And so I, I 
I thought, well, maybe I could, I didn't think it was possible to do at first because I didn't think the sources would be there. Because as you know, it's not an art form that's often written down. It's very uh, ephemeral. It's here and gone. It's dances are forgotten. They're not kept in a library somewhere. So I wasn't sure it was possible. So I started to investigate that. And then I thought I could figure out a way to do it. And then it became a kind of once I started, it became a kind of passion, and it started as a, a PhD dissertation. And then that thing that was focused more on the French Revolution grew into something much bigger. So, what what were some of the sources you were exploring? Uh, we were saying, uh, I doubt she just googled things since, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> no. This was a um, this was a really an archival project that took me. You know, I mean, it was a twelve year project. So. Um, I started in the archives in Paris, so in the Paris Opera Archives. And these are, you know, the papers of dancers, of choreographers, of theater directors, uh, everything from official records to um, scraps of paper with transpositions of music and and maybe a few steps Sometimes whole classes written down longhand, you know, but we're talking about 19th century. But do, do you speak French? Is, I, so I do speak French. Okay, that's what I, I was, I know you had said you studied French yeah, literature. Yeah, so I so studied I French maybe. literature. I did, I did French in, in uh, high school and college. So I had, was I, I had reasonably good French. Um, and then I taught myself some Italian in order to go into the Italian sources which um, took some time. I did not teach myself Russian, but I did go to Russia and um, also both look in archives there and also interview people. I also worked a lot in the archives in Denmark because there's a lot of really interesting stuff in the Bourneville tradition and around that whole style of dance. So, yeah, I worked all over Europe and, and in the New York Public Library as well. I'm wondering, how do you think this sort of research can be applied to um, the ballets we see today? You know, for instance, Alexei Romansky did an immense amount of research um, for his Sleeping Beauty. Um, do you think or hope that your work can be utilized in that way? Um, probably not. I think it's two, those are two different things. I mean, in, in fact, we actually used some of the same sources. Um, but the... You know, the focus of his work, obviously, is is trying to understand how he can, and I think that's the basis of your question, right, that how he can apply it and put it on the stage and make it into something, a living piece of theater today. And my goal is really kind of um, on the other side of the footlights, as it were. I mean, I'm really trying to look at it historically and analytically. And in a way, I'm using dance to understand history rather than using history to understand dance. I mean, both things happen, but my, my idea is that if you look at dance, you can see bigger things in a culture. You can see politics, you can see the way people live, you can see what they think. You can use dance as a kind of way of writing the history of ideas. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. What was um, some of the most uh, surprising things that you found out throughout this process? There must have been a whole bunch of moments that were like you were in awe of something that you didn't expect. Yeah, for me, it was just a great adventure because, I, you know, I got to all the questions that I had about the art form, like, you know, why are people even doing this strange stuff? You know, <laughs> so it was it was a way to actually. Um, it, it was a bit like being a detective, you know. And I would just go back into these archives and find these things. It was tremendously exciting. I mean, I remember walking down the street having these conversations with myself about this, and I was thinking, is anyone else in the world going to be interested in this? <laughs> you know. But for me, it was just a kind of riveting thing to to look at the Renaissance documents and see where these origins were. Other people had done this before, but I hadn't. And so it was my my way of coming to it and sort of bringing everything that I knew together. Um, the most surprising stuff probably came for me in the, um, really in the kind of enlightenment and the revolutionary period. Those sources were very interesting and not yet fully explored. So, you know, for the latter half of the book on Russia and and the U.S., I was using mainly other people's work for for the Balanchine and and uh, Robbins sections. Tudor, I was using some primary sources as well, but I was also leaning very heavily on on work that other people had done in order to sort of make a a synthesis, so a history that brought all of that together instead of everybody's you know everybody doing specialized study. So I my project was to try to bring it together in a way that would be, um, and this was important for me that it be well written and accessible to and interesting, not just to dancers, but to a general public. So obviously a lot of people were interested in it. So how did, can you tell us a little bit how, about how the book deal came about and when that happened throughout the process? So I guess the book came about really um, because somewhere along the way, back in 2001, I started writing for the New Republic as a critic so that was a kind of different project of criticism and history related, but a little bit different just because I was looking at live performance and writing about it. But I wasn't writing about it on a day-to-day basis the way many critics are required to. I was really, had a, I thought, very, I was lucky. <laughs> you know, I, I had just a platform to write long pieces that could, in which I use, I use these pieces really to try to learn how to write the history of dance. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but doing that gave me a a kind of body of work so that at the point at which I was also working on the book, publishers were interested. And and at that point, I did get a contract to do the book. Mm -hmm. So um, something I think is very interesting um, that you already brought up that uh, dance, it's not often recorded on a piece of paper. We preserve it in our bodies. You know, we have entire repertoires in our bodies. That's where we keep our information. So as dancers store information in our bodies and scholars do in their minds, uh, did you ever have any part of your research that you sort of physicalized? Did you, um, you know, were there, did you have to try things out on your body to know what, what that was like? Because I feel like 
as a dancer, that's how we understand things. Yeah, I actually did do that. And I, you know, one of my goals in writing the book was to try to tell the story from the point of view of the dancer. So not just as a critic looking from the outside or even as a historian looking from the outside, but but as somebody who was, you know, what what was it? One way to try to understand the ideas in, in dance is to actually do it and feel it physically, just as you were saying. So I did actually take some of the, you know, these scraps of paper with classes on them or notebooks with uh, steps. And I even I hired a violinist to come because some of the music was also there. And I'm not a musician. I'm not a trained musician. So I didn't really know how to, what to do with that without some help. So I hired a violinist because they were using violin mainly. Um, and, you know, I, I spent some some weeks in a studio just trying to put this stuff together. And that was actually incredibly informative, especially for the early 19th century stuff, because as you may know, the the notations that we have for the 17th century are still legible to us today. So we can actually reconstruct those dances, which are older, more easily than the dances of the early 19th century. But by going into the studio, I was able to get a sense of of really the kind of physical logic around behind them. That's fascinating. Um, so in the epilogue of Apollo's Angels, <laughs> um, you declared that, we have to talk about it, um, where you declared that ballet is a dying art form, uh, made uh, quite... No, 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 no. no? <laughs> I said it may be. Maybe. I, I just got nervous because we did, we did look no. it up. Okay, no. all right. <laughs> that it may be a dying art form, uh, made quite a splash within our community. So um, now seven years later, do you still stand by that? And do you feel that the choreographers of today are making moves in the right direction to invigorate the art form? Okay, so... <laughs> So this whole, uh, you know, tempest, right, was was really just um, the last, the epilogue of the book, um, which, as you said, got a lot of attention and kind of, in a way, surprised me because, you know, it's a 600-page book and the epilogue <laughs> is the last 10 pages, right? Um, so, but w- what it was really an effort to do was to, you know, look at the whole history of the art form from a historical point of view, and then think, just reflect a little bit on where we are today. And, you know, my purpose in doing that was not to um, sort of, you know, incriminate the art form or to say that the people doing it weren't doing it well, which I don't believe people, I think dancers are incredibly um, devoted and uh, serious about almost always about their art form. Um, but really to try to say, okay, you know, there have been times in the history of dance when ballet has gone into troughs and it has not always been, you know, the glory days. And so where are we now? And it did seem to me at the time that we were in something of a trough and I don't think dance is alone in that. So it was an effort to really sort of ask the question what is this art form to us today? And we're in the middle of, and we're sort of, we're now even more in the middle of it, but we were beginning it then, you know, of a, of a sort of massive social transformation mm-hmm. uh, due in part to technology, but also to other things as well. And so the question was really, you know, what does it mean? Why does it matter? What are we doing? How can we make it good? 
And that's not my, I mean, my, my role is to ask that question and to ask it in a historical context. Mm-hmm. It's the, the, the job of artists, right, to figure out what to do if they even think there's a problem. So, you know, that was my goal in asking the question. And I did think that the, and I still think that the, the sort of contours of the society and the things that people are interested in often go against the sort of ethical foundations of what dance is about, or especially ballet is about, and the things it requires. I mean, just to take one thing, you know, is, as you know, it takes, you know, up to 10 years of very, very disciplined, serious study to even begin to really be able to participate in this art form. And, you know, we live in a really fast-paced culture that wants immediate rewards. And so that's a kind of, you know, where do we, where does that sit? Where does that fit? Why are people willing to devote that time? And why should they be willing to devote that time? Those all seem to me questions worth asking. Do I think it is that there are good people working then and now? Yes. I did not, I'm a historian and it's, it was, I, when I was venturing into the present there, that's a kind of dangerous territory for a historian, right? So I didn't want to get into the, you know, who's doing what, who's up, who's down, who's right. good, who's bad. I mean, that's the, the, the sort of more, you know, the evaluation of contemporary work in your own time is really a role of the critic. And I was trying to kind of raise a larger set of questions in terms of a history where I tried to reveal the values and ideas behind the art form and then say, what are our values and ideas today? Mm-hmm. And do those support us going forward in a in a meaningful way? Mm-hmm. I do think that right now there's a kind of uh, porousness to the art form so that, you know, there seem to be a lot of new ideas in it. And that is one reason I founded the center, you know. Exactly so, what we wanted to segue entree, to. Right? Because, uh, <laughs> I think on the contrary, you're not merely asking these great questions, you are helping to find the answers by bringing in artists through um, the Center for Ballet and the Arts at New York University. So can you tell us, I mean, it's a pretty crazy endeavor to just get off the ground. And what? how did you have the idea and what, what was yeah. the process there? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I guess the idea is really just to do something interesting. I'm not trying to save the art form. <laughs> That's not my goal. You know, I don't, pretend to have that kind of insider uh, authority. But um, I'm just, I, I, you know, I've devoted my life to, to this art form, really. I mean, I did it, and then I spent 15 years writing about it. And the reason that I started the center really was that it, it, it seemed to me always that there was a place for some combining of the world of uh, knowledge in the academy and the knowledge that I found to exist also in the dance world. And it, and I, I didn't really find, you know, I, I suppose in a way it comes out of my own biography, you know. I had been in both of these worlds and I really couldn't find, you know, the academic world in the dance world and I really couldn't find the dance world in the academic I couldn't figure out how they could go together. So that was really my idea was how can I help how can each of these things help each other? And can they? So, <clears throat> you know, I had some long conversations with the Mellon Foundation about this, and they um, offered me a very important grant to start this center, and NYU immediately 
uh, jumped on board and and offered a sort of in-kind support. And as you've seen, we have beautiful facilities. And um, that was, what, five years ago, at least. Um, we've been open for three years, so it took quite a lot of planning. Uh, I spent a, a full year going sort of around the world, really, talking to people about what they thought the problems were and how this might offer something that doesn't already exist. So we're just a kind of, you know, a, a, a think tank in a way, a research center, an institute where people can come both from the academy and from the world of dance and its related arts, from design, from music, from poetry, from, you know, I mean, one of the beautiful things about ballet is that it it does encompass so many of the arts, right? So that's something that, that we try to reflect here. We are trying to get people and we and we have had a, a wide variety already you know people working on projects and the only requirement uh for coming here really is um that you be interested in working on something that is related to ballet even if it's not ballet itself and it's the idea is also to bring people who aren't in the profession not you know full-time as their only pursuit but to broaden the scope of the inquiry so that you're bringing in people who might not know as much, but bring other ideas, and so that we can all benefit from those. Can you tell us um, about some of the programs that the center has helped foster, and which ones you have um, in store or would like to found in the future? Our our core program is really our fellowship program. So that's in a way what I was just talking about. You know, where we we bring in um, somewhere between. I don't know how many, 15, 15, it depends, variable fellows a year um, to New York to work here, and they come with a project, each one. And so we're all here, and everybody's working on their project, but we're also sort of talking and learning from each other. So there's that. We also have a series of public programs. For example, we have the Lincoln Kirstein Lecture, which is an annual lecture, and the idea there is to bring in a sort of senior and major figure in uh, in the performing arts or in scholarship to talk about dance. So we had Helen Vendler, the poetry scholar at Harvard, did the first the first inaugural lecture, and last year we had Ian Bostrich come and talk about song and dance. And um, so that's the kind of idea behind that. Um, we have a series of other public talks and programs that is a little bit more, um, you know, depending on the moment. We did one on, on diversity um, with Tanhisi Coates in a collaboration with him at the French Cultural Center. Uh, we've done programs on uh, with the Brooklyn Academy of Music. We did one last year on a Nijinsky program that they were doing with... Uh, with Wilson and Baryshnikov and Daryl Pinckney. So that we did a program on. So, you know, we try to sort of tie the dance and the intellectual sides together. And that's that's sort of where we exist, is is to do that. So what are you working on now and what is next for you? Well, the center is really moving forward. You know, that really has to do with sort of deepening our, our fellowship program, making the things that we do better, um, expanding more internationally, expanding 
our collaborations with other organizations, you know, sort of once you set up an organization and I've learned that it's setting up an organization is a, it's a bit like, you know, putting on a show or something. It's, (laughs) it's a, a lot of work and it takes, um, you know, the center is now not just me anymore. It started with me, but it's now a lot of people. And there are a lot of people here who have great ideas. And I have a terrific group of people working with me. And so the center is now a sort of, it's a, it's a live thing. It's, an, it's a live animal and it has its own life. And I'm part of it. So that's very exciting. Well, thank you so much for... The, this was the um, larger portion of the interview, and now we just do a little quick bit at the end that we do for all of our guests, which is we call it our lightning round. And uh, it's not, don't worry, it's not uh, difficult. You're not, we're not going to get not gonna gotcha test me. questions. I got to test me. Oh, don't worry. Um, <laughs> I'm ready for you. <laughs> uh, um, so, what, what is your favorite ballet? Oh, I don't have a favorite ballet. You can pick a few. We let I people can pick, pick a few. People think they're getting away with murder when they say jewels because they get three and one. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, look, my you know the the it, it certainly was Balanchine that is the reason that I danced. Mm-hmm. That's the reason I danced. So most of my the most important works for me are his works. Some of them are Robbins. Um, so you know, I guess off the top of my head, right. Serenade, Fortis, Agon, uh, Violin Concerto. You can see where my taste lies. Um, Good taste. <laughs> yeah, Symphony in C. I mean, I'm going to forget everything right now, you know, so The Cage. A lot of good ones on there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what lost ballet would you want to bring back for today's audiences? Opus 52. Balanchine. That's a Balanchine ballet? Balanchine Schoenberg. Oh, okay. What, what, what year was that made? Mm, I'm going to have to look. That's so good. I mean, I always say Seven Deadly Sins because that's... Well, that would be a, another high contender. Yeah, yes. I, I even looked into it a few years ago. I was so... This is a sidetrack. Because yeah. I didn't... I found out that San Francisco Ballet had done it right. with Lou Christensen, I guess, doing yeah. some of the... And Cynthia Gregory did the Allegra Camp role. And I was like, okay, that means there are two sets of people in this world that know this ballet. Did they do it around the same period? It must have been just a few years later. I think they used this, the sets and costumes and everything. I, yeah, I had a, yeah. a moment where I really looked into this, but to no avail. No one remembers it. I right? guess not. Yeah. Allegra remembers her part, but for some reason. And it was confusing if it was like Lou's choreography as well as Balanchine. Right. Right. It was vague. Right. I know um, they sent like maybe Vita Brown or someone to help. I don't know. It was confusing. So something to consider. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, to me, the whole issue of reconstructing ballets is really fraught mm-hmm. because I'm not even sure that um, it's possible to do that. You know, I mean, we do it, but really what we get is not the old ballet, but we get a contemporary interpretation mm-hmm. of an old ballet. Right. And we don't even know what the text we're working from looked like. All right, this is the last one. Your dream program for the center. If you have no budget at all, sky's the limit. What's the number one thing you would do here? You know, I think we're doing what I would want to do. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, sure, if we had tons more money, maybe we'd get into other, we'd be able to give more of it away. And that would be good because I think artists need time and they need space to think and to work. And, you know, that's what we're trying to give them. 
That's great. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was so great to chat with you here in your beautiful center. <laughs> it really is beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining. Well, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Conversations on Dance is part of the ACAST Creator Network. For more information, visit conversationsondancepodpod.com. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.